0: Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that's accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome along to this episode, Anna Connolly. Anna is a Chartered Work and Organizational Psychologist. She's the current Chair of the Psychological Society of Ireland's Division of Work and Organizational Psychology, and founder of Work Frontiers. She's been a manager for 10 years in the technology sector and has a range of fantastic experience. Anna, you're very welcome.
1: Thanks, Laurie. Good to be here. So perhaps
0: you might start by telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in psychology?
1: Uh, Well, I guess for me, it was a particularly long and winding road uh, to how I ended up uh, working in psychology. Uh, I originally started working in the ICT industry and I worked for many years uh, for a company called Ericsson and I think it was when I became a manager myself that I really first became interested in psychology and in particular organisational behaviour and I did a a psychology degree with the Open University uh, while still working as a manager and uh, then I, I took the bold step I guess, to kind of specialise in work and organisational psychology and then set up my own practice.
0: And why work and organisational psychology in particular? Did that grow out of that experience with Erickson?
1: I think it grew out of the experience. I think initially I was really interested in just psychology. And as I went through my psychology degree, I began to see sort of the parallels with, you know, the work I was doing as a manager and and human behavior and i became really interested in how we could you know look at that science of human behavior and translate it into um what we were doing in the workplace because when you think about it uh, we spend most of our waking lives at work and so it always fascinated me that you know that was one area of psychology that uh you know maybe didn't get the same headlines as clinical psychology for example but it was the area I was interested in.
0: You know, so so often when we hear psychologists on the radio, for example, or on television, they're often talking about relationships or mental health or all of those things, absolutely critical and vitally important. But as you said, there's a whole other area of psychology that perhaps doesn't get the same level of focus.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think (laughs) even in terms of, Really, the the psychology has great insight into how we can function at our best as organizations and individuals. I remember I had a psychology teacher. My initial background is in science. So when I got my very first job, well, not my very first job, but my first job after college was as a, a telecommunications engineer. So my background was in physics. And I think when I became a manager, I was very struck by the fact that. You know some of the ideas you know people were far more complex than some of the you know software problems i had to deal with before then and i think it was that complexity that i was really fascinated about but also how you know how psychology um can really help businesses because if you think about it people are such a fundamental part of every aspect of business
0: Absolutely. And I think it is that that old thing about the hard problems, if you like, the things dealing with machines or with processes or physics and so on, uh, can actually be, in some cases, quite straightforward. Obviously, in other cases, quite difficult. But when you get to people, the whole thing can be so messy and so difficult to to really disentangle from context and history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many variables to consider. And even, I guess, I I remember having one lecturer at college who said psychology was like doing science. But with dirty test tubes because there's a lot of thing going on in the test tube that we don't really know about and we're still trying to you know do our experiments carry out our research, but the test tube it, it, it's not exactly it, it's a lot more difficult to disentangle certain variables I guess
0: I, I can absolutely uh, I can absolutely relate to that that analogy. And I guess part of, part of the problem then when we're talking about people and, and and the difficulty, if you like, of of understanding people dynamics is figuring out, perhaps particularly as a manager, what information we should rely on, what approaches, what, what techniques, what what tools we should uh, we, we should rely on and, and, and start to use? Which ones are evidence-based, for example?
1: Well, I I think that's a great question. And really, sometimes when we say things like evidence-based, we think this is just something that scientists consider. But if you think about it, every day we make lots of decisions, and every day we use lots of information to guide how we make those decisions. And really, when we're talking about evidence-based practice for managers, we're really talking about how we use information to make decisions but how we can do that in the most effective way. So even if you, if you think about um, the most simple decisions, like if you're trying to figure out what movie you're going to watch at the weekend, you know, we might look up, we might try and get some information. That information could be based on, um, you know, someone may have recommended the movie to us, or we might get our phones out and look up IMDB and see what have the critics given, what's the rating for this movie? But even the most sort of simple decisions involve us seeking out information before we make them. Uh, And I think we all do this uh, every day. In terms of evidence-based tools, it's really about looking at what, I I think before we even look at the tools, we need to think about what is the problem or what is the question we're trying to answer? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Because sometimes we get, sort of seduced by this great tool that's out there and we think i really want to use this tool and i'm going to use this tool in some way in my work but before we even go there we should first sort of stop and think what's the actual problem i'm trying to solve
0: so if we, if we go back to your your movie analogy uh, just just for a moment one thing that strikes me maybe this is me with rose tinted glasses thinking back to when i was uh when i was a late teens or early 20s sometimes the 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 best films were the ones that you just flicked on you had no idea what it was going to be but it was on the timing worked for for your timing and it was a great discovery but surely sometimes that also happens in an organizational setting you stumble across something that might actually be, be be really good
1: absolutely and sometimes we make decisions you know I think we have two things to consider here one is the quality of the decision we make, or if you like, the quality of the information that we look at in making our decisions. And the other is the outcome of the decisions. You know, sometimes, you know, you can toss a coin and the outcome of the decision, luckily, can be quite uh, favorable. Or as you say, you can stumble upon that movie and you can be very lucky and it can be a fantastic movie. Um, I know some of the movies I went to uh, when I was younger, it was You know, you wandered, you went out to the cinema and it was whatever was on. In Galway at the time, we would about two screens. So it was like whatever was on the two screens, that was what you went to see. So, I mean, I I think while we can have very fortuitous outcomes to some of the decisions we make, really what evidence based practice is about is trying to get the best quality evidence that we can and make decisions um, through using that evidence, ideally from lots of different sources and by asking really good questions around that evidence. And that increases the likelihood that we'll make a good decision.
0: Okay, so it sounds though, if we think back to to your earlier comments about science, it sounds like much of what you're describing there is evidence-based practice or, or perhaps linking it through to to leaders and managers in organizations, evidence-based management. It, it sounds like there's a degree of scientific background in terms of its its methodology and approaches, is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, evidence-based practice really has its, I guess its origins in the fields of medicine. Um, but more recently it's been adopted by management and by HR. And uh, also I, I should point out that I guess, The field of uh, work that I work in as an organizational psychologist, this is really something that we try to adopt and and we try to advocate for. And really I think it's interesting because it provides us, I guess I have kind of two perspectives on this. I work as a practitioner, often um, delivering services to organizations, but for many years I worked as a manager myself and so I think as a manager, you know, you have to make lots of decisions. Some of them are very low risk decisions every day. And from time to time, you also have to make very, I would class them as important or strategic decisions. And really, I think this evidence-based practice framework is, is really interesting for managers because it provides us with, you know, a framework for making some decisions under complexity and often uncertainty. So these are the kinds of tools I really wish I had when I was a manager myself, and um, because I think it's, it's an approach that can be really useful.
0: And I guess it's, it's also that point that you, you've you made already about on the one hand, you've got the decision, but it, that decision has to be based on a proper understanding and consideration of what the actual problem is. So it's the, the problem finding as well as the problem solving, if I can put it in those terms.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the very first step, I guess, if we look at it as a framework, it's about it's a six step framework. And really, the very first step that we look at is, you know, what is the problem? Sometimes um, what we think is a problem isn't actually the real problem at all. So really asking those questions at the start um, is so important, I, I think Einstein has this great quote where he says, you know, if I had a minute uh, at the end of the world to solve, uh, you know, a really big problem, I'd spend 59 seconds trying to figure out what the actual problem was <laughs> and asking questions in the last second to fix it or the last minute to fix it. But it's that idea of before we embark on a course of action that we just take some time to think about you know, what is the problem? What is the evidence for the problem? I mean, uh, I know even in in the workplace, like typical problems. I know when I worked, we, we had lots of metrics and one metric that was very important in the organization I worked in was utilization, for example. And we'd look at these utilization figures and say, yes, you know, somebody's utilization is low, somebody's utilization is high. And if the utilization was low, it'd be like, we really need to fix this. And I I think when you're asking questions, it's always very interesting. It really depends on who you ask. Mm -hmm. You know, if you ask somebody from HR, they might say, oh, you know, the problem is definitely that, you know, some of the engineers or consultants haven't had enough training or the line managers need more training. If you ask somebody from IT, they might say, well, actually the whole timesheet system isn't working so we're not getting accurate figures anyway or if you ask somebody you know depending on someone's background or frame of reference they may answer the question in a different way and so i think really when we're asking the question about what the problem is it's always really useful to try and get some solutions from multiple sources if possible
0: and so once we've once we've thought about that that question and, yes. and tried to, uh, to really understand the problem and, and what's really going on and, and perhaps as you said take into account those different perspectives mm-hmm. what would be the, ne- the next step is do we then jump into giving the answer and giving a solution or or are there are a number of steps along the pathway
1: well the next step really would be about searching for and retrieving evidence. So the evidence in this framework, it comes from four different sources. So sometimes when we think about evidence-based practice, we think this is just something that, you know, we need to look for scientific evidence. But one of the important sources of evidence is the practitioner's own experience. So, you know, managers and uh, different, you know, organizational psychologists, we all have, um professional judgments and experience built up over many years of working. So that's a great source of evidence, the professional experience of the practitioner, or in this case, the manager. Another source of evidence is the scientific evidence, and that is, you know, um, journals that are available from, you know, management journals or different kinds of academic journals. And this can be a little bit of an issue for a lot of us because some managers don't have access to scientific journals, and also it's not something maybe they've been accustomed to looking at in terms of evidence. Uh, The third source of evidence then would be looking at the organizational data. So for any problem you can find within the organization, you can find some financial data, some data from surveys or focus groups, cash flow data, all of this can be really useful in answering this hypothetical uh, problem or question that we have. And then finally, there's the stakeholders' values and concerns, and that's looking at, you know, how does this affect different stakeholders? How does this affect employees? How does this affect managers? How does this affect our customers and our suppliers? So they're the four sources of evidence, if you like, So uh, if you have a problem, so I I think sometimes it's helpful when we go through this to think of a particular problem that we have or a question that we want to answer and then to, you know, go through the six steps. So once we've defined our problem, we can um, then look at the different sources of evidence. And then the next step would be critically judging the trustworthiness or the relevance of that evidence and um, then deciding on how we're going to proceed. So I guess when I talk this through, it sounds very cumbersome almost, that there's a lot of steps, there's a lot of stuff to do. But I think one of the beauties of this framework is, you know, you can use it, sometimes it might be just using it to stop and pause in a meeting and say, well, what is the evidence that this problem exists in our organization? Why do you think this is a problem? You know, it can be about asking good questions or for more, if you like, important decisions. It can be about systematically going through all of these steps to really feel that you can justify the decision that you've made at the end of the process.
0: OK, so you're you, you, you was talking about the asking, uh, asking what the problem is to understand that, you know, gathering all that, that, that information, then sort of thinking about the um the, the the relevance or the, the 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 trustworthiness or the reliability I guess of that evidence. where where do you where do you go from there? what are the 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 final three steps?
1: Well the final three steps then are you weigh up and pull together all the evidence. so it's like you aggregate it and then you look at applying it, which is where you look at the evidence and allow it to inform your your final decision. and then you take that decision. And afterwards, the final step is assessing where you evaluate the outcome of the decision that you've taken.
0: So, so it's very much then about, about, a, a, I guess, a stage of reflective practice and after action review, that kind of process of really, really thinking, okay, well, what, where did that work or not? And is that evidence that we've used? Is that the right evidence? Or should we look for other evidence in the future?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's common in most decision-making processes. You know, you'll always have a a sort of a check, if you like, point where after you've made your decision, you evaluate the outcome of that decision that, that was taken. And I think with this process, this is really about the quality of the decision that you make, that you can say, I've made a decision on, you know, the best available evidence to me at the time. The reality often is when we make decisions, that, you know, we're making them during uncertainty. So we don't maybe have all the evidence we'd like to have before we go and make a decision. But we're making, the key point here is that we're making a decision based on the best available evidence that we have at the time.
0: And I guess that uh, that you're making implicit reference there, that old uh, VUCA conundrum, the volatility, uncertainty, yes. complexity and ambiguity, yeah. uh, which, which is in, in the world around. And no less than at the moment, uh, with with the whole COVID-19 uh, saga continuing on outside.
1: Absolutely. And I think we've seen a lot of uh, great evidence based practice and also not so great uh, <laughs> during this. And I mean, even some examples about, you know, where we get our information from um, I, I think at one stage people were getting their information from so many different sources, often not reliable sources. So say if we get our information from somewhere in Ireland, like our HSE website or the World Health Organization website, they, they'd they be very trustworthy sort of sources of information. You know, we really have to think critically about where am I getting my evidence here? And I think one of the things that's come out of, of COVID-19 is, you know, we're all now looking at statistics and data and graphs um, during the crisis to try and use that information to kind of um a lot of public health officials and governments are are using a lot of data to inform their decision making so it, it definitely ties in there
0: and i can see as well the uh, the, the risk and without naming any names but the, the risk of going onto a social media platform of your choice and falling victim to confirmation bias looking around for for data from a friend who may or may oh. not know anything but it's data and information and evidence for want of a better term that confirms what you already feel or perhaps even fear about the current situation
1: absolutely and one of the things about this framework is it 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 forces us to kind of go through this systematic step-by-step framework and that's almost a you know that should help counteract some of uh, those great sort of decision-making biases that we have The confirmation bias is a great one. It's where, you know, we will look for information that confirms the decision that we make. So we'll actively seek out information. So even by having to go to multiple sources, that can help with our tendency to just, you know, naturally do that. And I think also the conformity bias is a good one because sometimes in companies we think, you know, even within teams, we may want to you know conform with what everybody else is saying about this problem or about this decision that whole idea of you know groupthink, um and even in terms of different companies we may think you know if google are doing this if apple are doing this it, it must be good you know so therefore um Without really thinking, is my business or company comparable to Apple or Google in any way, we might go and try and use a particular tool or a particular idea that we've seen uh, in the media or in the press reported on.
0: Everything you've described in many ways, and I know you said that it might sound cumbersome, but in many ways it sounds... Very straightforward and very yeah. common sense about how we should be approaching decision making, but what, why isn't why why aren't we doing that? Why, why aren't managers in in organisations doing that? Is it simply a lack of awareness, or is it something else?
1: Well, I I think it's a number of things. It's as you mentioned, some of it is around some of those biases that we have in decision making, but also um, I think. You know, we can often be subject to making decisions. um, You know, within organizations, there may be politics going on. We may be swayed by agreeing with our boss on certain decisions. We may be swayed by, we're often also swayed by, you know, these beliefs, these fads, these fashions. Mm. A lot of popular ideas in management, if you like. I mean, one I always think of is that great, you know, the management guru, if you like, or this great story of, uh, you know, this one heroic CEO who has, um, you know, his method of managing has resulted in great success for a company. But, But if we try and translate that into our own business, you know, we're going to run into a lot of problems there. So sometimes it may be that we feel that certain we, we may might not even question some of the assumptions underlying our definition of a problem, or we might not even question some of the assumptions underlying how effective different solutions are.
0: And I notice you you uh, you said, I'm not sure whether it was a conscious thing or an unconscious when you're talking about those those great sort of charismatic leaders. Uh, you used the the male pronoun or like his. Uh, yes. And actually, I, I think in many ways you're correct to use that because yes. so many of these you know, heroic leaders that are held out there are often the the, the, the great man, um, which yeah. is another field of leadership studies, striding the, the global stage. And perhaps there's this less questioning of, of well, why aren't there more, more female icons? Of course, there are some, but, but why aren't there more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in terms of what we do, um like i've seen just relating to what you've brought up there that whole idea of trying to improve even diversity in leadership that uh, i mean sometimes we will jump to what we think is the latest idea around that and that in itself is quite a complex problem but i think we love uh, our brains love to seek out one nice easy solution to it you know what i mean so sometimes it could be something like you know, if we give everybody in the organization unconscious bias training, the number of female leaders we have it, it is going to increase, you know, and the reality is that there's never, or, or at least in my experience, <laughs> and, and the I think the evidence backs this up, There's for complex problems, there's very rarely one simple solution. There's usually multifaceted solution needed. And, you know, while unconscious bias training might be one part of that, it's very rarely going to be the answer, if you like, to that issue, if we use that as an an example.
0: Well, I think if you're going to talk about, say, the the number of female leaders in organizations generally, there are so many other social and cultural issues that that, uh, might even prevent women getting to a position where they can be considered for leadership before bias even kicks in because of social family cultural expectations all that sort of stuff which is a clearly a, a whole different uh a different discussion but one yeah well worth having
1: absolutely yeah absolutely so i think if we go back um to you know why why this is i suppose why this is what gets in the way of this i guess first of all so what are some of the barriers that get in the way and as we mentioned our biases can get in the way of us making some, you know, looking at good quality evidence around decisions. The politics of the organization may get in the way. There's often a sense that we don't have enough time to do this, Mm. you know, that we often feel we're under a lot of time pressure, but really in reality, if we don't take the time to do this, you know, this could cost our organization a lot of money if we sort of embark on, you know, making bad quality decisions over, you know, a range of different areas.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And I mean, everything you're you're saying makes absolute sense to me. But what what evidence, if you like, is there for evidence based practice and evidence based management? Surely that's something that's been uh, reviewed as well.
1: Absolutely. And and there's a great number of studies on this, I think. And for example, and we may be possible to put some links to these, I don't know, at the at the end of the podcast. But I guess what we have found out is that, you know, forecasts or risks assessment based on uh, one person's experience, you know, they're not as accurate as aggregated experience of many people. So this would be evidence for, you know, you need to look at many sources. professional we we also have this great idea of you know this intuitive manager this manager that can go with his or her gut um and unfortunately the evidence (laughs) sort of doesn't agree with that much as we might wish it did but really professional judgments based on some hard data or statistical models are more accurate than those judgments just based on our individual intuition or even our individual experience and you know um, knowledge derived from scientific evidence has also been found to be more accurate uh, than the opinions of experts so i think there's a lot of um sort of sound evidence for this but i also think um another barrier maybe to this is managers aren't generally trained on how to do this and also um Managers, you know, particularly if they haven't done any kind of executive education, may not even be aware or may not have access to um like you know, academic journal databases and this to seek out some of this evidence. and there there's also a move because uh, when you talk to a lot of managers, they'll say even those that have you know some form of executive education, they'll say things like, well, you know, it's very difficult when I read this journal article to see how this is going to translate into my day-to-day work. And so I think academics as well have a job of work to make uh, their research findings more accessible and also more understandable to managers in the field. So um, th- there's, a, there's a few different things in there.
0: And I guess uh, the, the danger is if, if the, the academics are not in a position to do that to fill that that gap that vacuum it gets filled by by others who perhaps might be good at popularizing ideas without necessarily conveying them in their full richness and 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 with their full full background of 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 evidence and maybe that's where some of those fads that you were hinting at earlier on come from
1: yeah absolutely I, i think you know there's some great um there's some great research and there's some great findings out there, but it's how they are communicated into the mainstream, if you like. And I think academics are getting an awful lot better at doing this. And also um, there is a lot of great research, sort of great resources available from the Centre for Evidence-Based Management. So they have, you know, within there, they even have some, systematic reviews and meta-analysis that are freely available that you can uh, get access to uh, for uh, on different areas of management. And I think a lot of journals now, a a lot of articles and academic research is becoming available on open access platforms and Google Scholar. For example, we can find a lot of good um, good stuff there, even if we don't have access to um, sort of the traditional uh, journal articles uh, that maybe academics or people working in education would have access to.
0: Okay, that, that all sounds good. Now, you, you mentioned there the Centre for Evidence-Based Management. Do they have a website that people could look at if they want to find out more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they It's uh, www.cebma.org. And there is loads of um, excellent resources there. And, you know, on lots of sort of articles, uh, easy to read PowerPoints. There's also some online training available from there on evidence-based practice and some good books and some good reading. So there's uh, there's lots, there's certainly lots there.
0: Anna, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast. It's been great speaking to you and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon.
1: Thanks Laurie, take care.
0: I'm not